Grace Family Church of Rhode Island presents Word of Hope, a sermon series with Pastor Luciano Cozzi. You know, brethren, the world seems to be caught in a craze of upside-down values. We are told in the world that love oftentimes is weakness, that toughness is the, the name of the strength, that the strongest people will prevail in, in life, that power is something that we have to gain, that we have to conquer, that victory, victory comes only by force. And I, I just can't help but wonder what that would look like if God decided to use those ideas, those concepts, for the most important battle of all ages, of all eternity. The battle that Jesus Christ fought to overcome and defeat evil once and forever. God's victory over evil is the most important battle ever. The stakes are of infinite value. And on that depends the destiny of the entire world, of all of our lives, of our eternity, in fact. So, how would God stage that battle? Would he want to really be tough so that he can be respected and gain power? Would he want to show his strength and his toughness to the world, to subdue the world? But that's not what he did, is it? How would he achieve that victory? The answers can be found in a very short account of the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. We find it in Mark chapter 1 and verses 4 to 15. Let's read it together. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and his diet was locust and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him, and a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit 
impelled him to go out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Here we find that with just a few words, Mark covers events of vital importance and profound, profound meaning indeed. So we need to look at this passage carefully. Make sure that we understand the depth of it and not read too superficially because it seems as if in this passage every word almost has a depth of meaning. We can look at it mostly like a, a summary or an outline of those events that took place. So let's, let's look at it and let's begin with verse 4. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I think we, we remember that Jesus himself called John as, uh, defined John as the most important prophet they had lived up to that point at least. John, the name John, was actually a name that was chosen by Gabriel, the angel Gabriel. It was given by the angel Gabriel to John the Baptist's father, uh, Zechariah, uh, the priest, during his service in the temple. And he was a chosen prophet there was to open the way for Messiah. His name, the name John, actually means the Lord is gracious. And it seems to me like God commanded Gabriel to announce that name to Zacharias because John was to announce, he was to proclaim the coming of grace. And even his name will be a testimony to that. The Lord is gracious. Now, John is an important figure in here and an important character in God's plan. He was the last prophet of the Old Testament. And he was ordained to be the forerunner of the Messiah that people were waiting for so long. Now, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance. Now, that baptism is different from a Jewish ceremonial washings because it wasn't something that was repeated all the time. It was a one-time deal. It had a special meaning. It was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So the message that John was teaching and preaching, and the baptism that he was officiating had a very specific meaning. The meaning of returning to God. The meaning of repentance from sin. It stood as a symbol, a physical sign of the inner repentance in the hearts of the people at turning back to God not following our own ways anymore, but going back to God in a total surrender, 
to him in his way. And it implied the acknowledgement of a person's desperate need for God and for God's forgiveness. In verse 5, Mark wrote, And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Why all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem? Because the people by then were thirsty. They were thirsty for the word of God. They had been, it had been more than 400 years since the previous prophet, Malachi. And people were longing for Messiah. And John had finally come to announce the imminent coming of that long-awaited Messiah. But he called the people to confess their sins. That's very important, and that's what they did. John would not baptize any of them without confession and repentance being manifest first. In fact, he actually rebuked some of the Pharisees who had gone to him thinking that because they were children of Abraham, they could be, well, they could be justified. John wanted to see signs of repentance and a confession of sin. That is important because when John later meets Christ, all that meaning, all that meaning comes together. So we need to keep it in mind. But in verses 7 and 8 is written, And he, he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So he was proclaiming the imminent arrival of Messiah, the imminent beginning of Messiah's ministry. Someone much, much greater than John, who would baptize the people not just with water, which is a symbol, but with the Holy Spirit, whose baptism would be actually the real thing. What does it mean to baptize? Baptize from a Greek word baptizo means to immerse. It is a symbol of our immersion into the body of Christ and our immersion into and our ushering into the communion that Christ gives us with God. It's a very important event, a very important moment, a very important act that is performed by God, the Father, through Christ, in the Holy Spirit. And John here said, yes, I baptize you with water, which is a symbol of all that, but the one who's coming after me is the real deal. He is the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Verse 9, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. This is a very short and very simple statement. It almost seems like it's an insignificant moment, an insignificant step in the flow of the events of those days. But it's extremely important in meaning. 
And we need to really understand what's going on. Mark doesn't waste any words, but he gave us the hints and the tips that we need to understand. Remember a moment ago, we talked about the fact that John would not baptize anyone without seeing a manifestation of confession and repentance, because he was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, in Mark, Matthew, a parallel passage, in, verse, in chapter 3, in verses 14 and 15, we read that John tried to prevent Jesus, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And as Jesus insisted, then he, John, permitted him. Notice that John himself objected to that request of Jesus. I mean, why would Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, pure, holy, sinless, why would he need to participate in a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins? John, like us, would not understand that. But Jesus insisted, and he told John that it had to be fulfilled because that was a part of fulfilling all righteousness. So John went ahead. And in that baptism, we see a great deal of meaning. We see a great deal of meaning because we see how Jesus Christ identified with us, with sinners. It was a baptism that would be a symbol of his death and resurrection of his payment for our sins, but even more than that. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, tells us what exactly was happening at that moment. Notice that. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let me read it again. God made Jesus Christ Messiah, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. So he took on himself our sins, not only that, but he made himself sin for us on our behalf, so that we may become the righteousness of God in him. In that act of baptism, going to John the Baptist, and wanting, insisting, to participate in a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin, Jesus made a clear declaration. I am taking your sins and making them my own, on your behalf, so that I can give you my righteousness that becomes your righteousness in me. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the depth of this act, of this action, of this moment, the importance of that, as Jesus makes himself sin for us, God in the flesh, 
makes himself sin for us. You don't see a conqueror in here, but you see a humble God who comes to us, seeks us out, and offers himself for us in a way that it's almost unimaginable that the holy, perfect, full, absolutely righteous, the one who has absolutely nothing in common with sin, that he would make himself sin on our behalf for us so that he can share with us his righteousness. There is so much depth in that brief statement of Mark. But Mark continues... Notice verses 10 and 11. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. What we find here is a public affirmation that he was truly Messiah. We find the triune God present and involved in all of this because God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is very much involved in, in the work of salvation, in the ministry of Christ, in the ministry of redemption. A vital aspect of Jesus' ministry is that he did not come to display power. He came to serve and not to be served. He came for you. He came for us. To serve us. Can you imagine just that concept? It's mind-boggling. God Almighty, the creator and sustainer of the whole universe, came into this world to serve us. That takes the values of this world upside down, doesn't it? That's why scripture says that the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. But this job, the job of Messiah at this point, had just started. It was not quite yet accomplished. Verses 12 and 13. Immediately the Spirit impelled him to go into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. Once again, it seems like Mark is giving us here a summary rendition of the events. In this case, immediately after his baptism, and immediately after the public declaration from God himself that he is indeed Messiah. Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. Think about it for a moment. Sometimes we, we pray to God that God will remove a problem, a trial, a temptation from us so that we can feel comfortable. He was God's son. God has just stated miraculously from heaven, you are my beloved son. God was well pleased with him. But he was still subject to temptation. Just as we are. 
So if we are subject to temptation ourselves, it's not because God has rejected us. It's not because God doesn't care for us. Love does not mean for us to be comfortable. Love does not mean to make someone else comfortable either. That has nothing to do with it. Love is a giving of oneself for the benefit of the other person. And sometimes that benefit implies our necessity, our need to experience temptation. Jesus had to. And yet, we know that God was still well pleased with him. So it's not so much the fact that we are exposed to temptation as the way we respond to temptation. That is what happens in the temptation of Jesus, by the way. Jesus was tempted by Satan and as Satan tempted him, Satan wanted to overturn all that. He wanted to impose the values of Satan, the values of this world on Jesus Christ. He wanted Christ to basically serve himself. We find more detail given to us in Matthew chapter 4 and verses 1 through 11. Matthew concentrated in his account, he concentrated on the temptations that occurred after 40 days of fasting. It seems like at that time those temptations were kind of a summary or, or, or a type of what Jesus was exposed to. Mark stated that Jesus was being tempted throughout the 40 days as well. But what was the nature of those temptations? Well, the nature of those temptations was quite specific. It started with physical hunger. The, in a way, the lust of the eyes. And Satan told Jesus, well, if you are the Son of God, by the way, notice that if, if you are the Son of God, well, command for these stones to turn into bread so you can feed yourself. Now you might say, well, is it wrong to give food to someone who is hungry? No. But what it would have been wrong is for Jesus to use his divinity as and place his divinity subservient to his humanity. That would have been the equivalent to idolatry. God worshiping man instead of man worshiping God. And Jesus didn't do that. Jesus did not fall for the lust that Satan was trying to stimulate in him or instill in him. Personal gain, or some people would, would refer to that as the lust of the flesh, was also part of the temptation or the power. Everybody seems to want power in this world. And Satan offered to him all the kingdoms of the world if he would just, Jesus would just worship him. But he didn't fall for that either. 
the pride of life did not prevail over Christ. In fact, quite the opposite. You see, Jesus never, ever, ever performed a single miracle to serve himself. He never used the fact that he was fully God, his divinity, as a means to gain something for his humanity. He always kept the humanity, the humanity in himself, subservient to the divinity, to God. In verses 14 and 15, then is written, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. After his temptation, John's ministry ended. He was imprisoned. But Jesus' ministry became public and began. The public ministry of Jesus started taking place. What was the proclamation? That the time had finally come. That the kingdom of God was at hand and that people were to turn back to God. They were to repent, to turn back from their own ways to God, to trust Him, to believe in the good news and to do basically what Jesus had modeled and had done through those temptations. To trust God and to surrender and to God in all things. It seems like all of this takes the values that we are given by this world and turns them upside down. It seems like it would be the opposite of what in our human nature, in our carnal nature, we would, we would probably do, we would want to do. Love, the love of God expressed in Jesus Christ is far from being weakness. It's actually the very manifestation of God's power. The power of God is expressed in His love for us. His righteousness, not brute strength, is what prevailed. And the victory, the ultimate victory, the ultimate defeat of evil, the ultimate defeat of Satan that represents all evil, came from the humility of Christ who made himself human, who humbled himself to be one of us and actually, in fact, to, to become a servant. And the Lamb of God, not only a servant, but to be the one who would be made sin for us on our behalf so that he could pay with his own life for our sins. And, and even that is just mind-boggling because the very God who is the source of all life was willing to experience death for you, for us. And of course, he came back to life. He was risen. And in the resurrection, we now find the God who made himself human Fully God, fully man, continuing to be 
glorified human, absolutely, yes, but continuing to be the point of conversion, the point of connection between us and God. And so the Holy Spirit continues to drive us to drive us to Christ, who leads us to and connects us with the Father, and forever He is the point of connection between us and God. God has given us all things, hasn't He? More than that, God has given us Himself. And what is He asking of us? Not that we go around like big conquerors to overcome everybody and everything and, and prevail over thing, everything, but actually that we would turn to Him and trust Him, not ourselves, but Him. That we would accept His gift of salvation. It's a gift. We can't earn it, but we can accept it and benefit from that. And that we would believe that He has our future in His hands. And it's a very good future. Brethren, if God has gone through so much to make it possible for us, do you really think that the future that He has in store for us is insignificant or small or little or something that perhaps is kind of boring as some people think it is? Oh no. It's the most glorious thing it's so glorious that the whole creation eagerly waits. It's eagerly waiting for you, for, for you to be manifested as a child of God. God is asking us to surrender to his love. In fact, he promised that he would pour out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit and through the Holy Spirit so that we would be filled with His love and it would overflow from us so that we can express it to one another and love one another even as He loved us. In other words, He has called us to participate in who He is, in His very nature, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and to participate in His life. You see, oftentimes we think of the redemptive ministry of Jesus Christ only happening at the cross, but that's not quite it, is it? In the very incarnation, the very life of Christ, and then his death and resurrection, in his suffering, in this presence in this world, in the way that he walked as the only perfect human, all of that put together is part of the redemptive ministry of Jesus Christ. So brethren, let's not fall for the ways of this world. Let's not think that we need to be tough, rude, disrespectful. That we need to trample over other people's heads in order to advance ourselves. Let us respond, let us answer Jesus Christ's call. The time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, turn back to God and believe the good news, the really good news that God has an eternity of glory in store for all of us. And may he guide us 
And may he draw us to himself so we can accept his love, so we can accept his gift, we can accept his salvation and thrive in it in abundance of life. God bless you.